Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. Welcome to season five, mm-hmm. listeners, where we are officially taking a break from cults. Yes, yes. I hope you all really thoroughly enjoyed the cyanide series and the cults from last season, but that was a lot, so we're not doing that. <laughs> we are back to some regular one poison hitters. Yes. So. Yes. Where are we headed for this season five opener? So this story is the story of Holly Crippen, and he was a homeopath in London, but he was an American, and he's infamous. Really, if you've heard of Holly Crippen, you've probably heard of him for his crimes in London, and we will get into some other stuff later, but I had never heard this guy before I was, you know, researching episodes to do for the show, and then I got into it, and I was like, whoa, what? It's a crazy story, but we'll get there. So he was living in London. He was born in America in Coldwater, Michigan in 1862, so this takes place at the turn of the 20th century in London. He studied medicine in America, but also in England. So he moved around like a lot. He This guy was all over the place. He went to England in 1897 as a homeopath to sell patent medicine to Londoners. And that was kind of just when they were beginning to accept homeopathy. And this is in like the book, you know, that we want to work on. And it's just like, there's so much to homeopathy. I cannot get into it right now. But I just, I feel like it was an interesting choice that he was like, yeah, I'm going to set myself up as a homeopath because he actually had a diploma in ear and eye medicine. And so it's like, that's a way more like legitimate field. Right. It's not just nature's cure-alls, things like that. It's legit medicine. So he had a little bit of both. Yes. Yes. But he decided to do homeopathy and he did get hired with a company to do homeopathy. So he, he didn't set up like his own office to do it. But I don't know, this guy just had kind of a weird life. And when he came to England for the last time in 1897, his wife Cora came with him. And Cora was an actress. She was kind of like a small time sort of, she wasn't doing vaudeville when she was in America, but she was just doing small time stage stuff under a stage name, Belle Elmore. And Cora wasn't Crippen's first wife. He'd been married once before in 1887. Her name was Charlotte Bell. They had a son together in 1888 named Otto Holly Crippen, and then Charlotte died, unfortunately, in 1890 in Salt Lake City from a stroke while nine months pregnant with their second child. Oh, wow. And then after that, Dr. Crippen just sort of fucked off to New York and left his son with his paternal grandparents in California, and I guess he was like, oh, you guys will, like, raise him better than I will. And I don't know if it's because he was like, I'm not tied down and I still want to travel and I need to like find a wife and mother and, you know, you But two. either way, he kind of just abandoned him. Yeah, he, yeah, he did. And like he stayed in contact, but he wasn't like a father what, figure. Yeah, yeah. So then he meets Cora and he met Cora when she was 17. Very 
you know. Sus. Yeah. Well, Sus. 20th century stuff, but it's also like, ew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but at that time, Cora was actually involved with another man who was cheating on his wife to be with her. So mm. this story is just, this sets the stage perfectly. High drama all the time for this story. <laughs> <laughs> so Cora was from Brooklyn. They met in New York. And then she married Holly when she was 18 and he was 30. So this was less than two years after the death of his first wife. Easy to move on. Yeah. And then after they married, they moved to St. Louis, and then they moved back to the East Coast so that Cora could train as a singer in Philadelphia, and Holly was supporting her on his homeopathy and his ENT stuff. I mean, I would I would think it's ENT. They probably didn't call it that. I don't know if you don't want right. the throat, but you know. Mm-hmm. But by the time they moved to Europe, and he was working for this homeopathy company in London, their marriage was already on the rocks. Dr. Crippen had been brought into the Munyon's Homeopathic Remedy Company to open their office in London, which is why they moved. And so she kind of had to abandon her career goals. You know, she had to give up her aspirations of being an opera singer or, like, she wanted to be an opera singer, but she definitely wasn't there yet. So it's kind of like she had these aspirations that were right. never, I think, going to be fulfilled, which sounds kind of shitty to say. But like, No, but it but it also, like, she probably had to live with the what would could have been or yes. what, you know, like, and also if it weren't for my marriage, I was yes. going to make it, like. Yeah, and I think that's what And use that as an excuse, yeah. Totally, totally. And so she tried her, you know, hand at vaudeville in London, and that really didn't work out. So she was struggling. And then in 1905, Crippen's business or his office with Munions began to struggle. And this might have been because people were like, homeopathy kind of sucks and it's not really useful. So they had to move into a semi-detached house at 39 Hilldrop Crescent, which is, because of this case, an infamous address in London. And neither of them were happy there. And it wasn't, like, a terrible house, but, like, I think it was smaller than where they wanted to be. And, like, she began drinking a lot, and they were both cheating on each other. And actually, part of the reason that they maybe moved to 39 Hilldrop Crescent specifically is that they moved out of a one-bedroom home into a two-bedroom home. And so now they were sleeping separately. Things were very, very much on the rocks. Signs of a good, (laughs) good, yeah, yeah, situation. Yeah, Yeah, everything's great. (laughs) And, like... People who knew them, because they did have a lot of mutual friends that they hosted wherever they were living, they, like, weren't really surprised that it wasn't working out because they were just kind of a weird couple. Like, Cora was Belle Elmore, and she had this big personality, and she was loud and dramatic and boisterous. And Dr. Crippen was this small, quiet, mild-mannered, homeopathic doctor guy. (laughs) And so everybody's just mm-hmm. like, why? I mean, I guess opposites attract. Is that what's happening here? But weird pairing. But do they always work out or do they separate like yeah. water yeah. and oil? And then Cora yeah. just like, he went on a business trip to America and then came back. And Cora flat out told him that she was cheating on him with a man named Bruce M- Miller. Oh, yeah. Nice. And then Holly, who was 44 years old by then, like... I think he was still offended, like there was still some sort of pride there, but he was having an affair with his 23-year-old secretary, Ethel Leneve. And I think the only good thing about this terrible marriage between these two people who just kind of hated each other were that they just never had children themselves. And again, Holly has his first son, but that first son isn't in the picture. So these two, and they never had children. Mm -hmm. 
but I don't know that that was a choice because when Cora was 20, she actually underwent a full hysterectomy. And I don't know why she underwent a full hysterectomy, but I guess, like, this is just back when hysterectomies were, like, pretty common. Like, Mm -hmm. gynecology is an old medicine, and I think hysterectomies, when she had hers, they were kind of prescribed all the time. Like, are you crazy? Hysterectomy. You know, like, one of those. Right, 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 right. So so it could have been for anything. It could have been because they actually, like, did find some sort of, like, abnormal growth, or it could have been because they were, like... We don't like disorders. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But this was a well-documented hysterectomy. Like, she definitely had it. It wasn't one of those things where, like, she went in and had something else or, like, she couldn't have children and said that she had a hysterectomy. It was very well-documented. And she had a scar from it, which is weird because, I don't know, it seems like she had kind of a laparoscopic scar based on, like, where it was, but, like, laparoscopic surgeries weren't a thing then. Right. But she had this nasty scar, like, on her lower abdomen that did not heal well, and it, like, got infected, and it, like, drained pus, and so she told people about her time with, like, this surgery and this scar, and she would show people her scar, so, like, everybody who talked to her for, like, any period of time and then ended up in this conversation, they had actually (laughs) seen the scar. So it was a well-known thing about her. Yeah. So as I said before... They did host people no matter where they lived. They hosted people for dinners, like, pretty frequently. And even though their relationship was failing, they would still, like, invite people to come over. And so people saw them at maybe, like, not their best, you know? One of Cora's friends Mm -hmm. actually had a falling out with her, and it was possibly over her treatment of Dr. Crippen in the Crippen home during one of these social events when Cora was acting particularly ill-tempered towards him. So mm. so she lost a friend because of how she acted towards her husband? Potentially. Yeah, it depends on gotcha. who you talk to or, you know, mm. what documents mm-hmm. you reference at this point. But, like, sure, sure. it was just fairly well known, I guess, that, like, they kind of had a rocky relationship. Even if, like, not everybody necessarily knew about the affairs. Like, they just knew, like, things weren't quite working out with them. Mm-hmm. So some of the friends that were hosted by the Crippens were Paul and Clara Martinetti, and they were actually the last people to be hosted by the Crippens before Cora disappeared. And this was at a dinner party on January 31st, 1910. According to the Martinettis, it was a fairly normal evening with friends. They had a potluck dinner, some drinks, and they played cards. But then around one in the morning, Paul was struck with the effects of some sort of chronic illness that he suffered from frequently. And the Crippens were familiar with this. They'd seen this happen to him before. And so Paul and Clara went home, and nobody really thought much of it. They were just like, oh, I'm sorry that you're not feeling well, Paul. I hope you feel better. Mm -hmm. And then the next day was also a pretty ordinary day. Holly Crippen went to work and then paid a visit to the Martinettis to check in on Paul. And he didn't mention anything, like, out of the ordinary to them. I don't think he really even mentioned the party, aside from, like, hey, Paul, how are you feeling? And... Paul and Clara actually didn't know that February 1st, when Holly checked in on them, was the day he was being replaced at Munions. But he was also starting a new job at Yale mm. Tooth Specialists. And so okay, it was just kind of like, I guess, a weird detail that not during the dinner party, not during that day, he was like, oh, yeah, Munions is letting me go. But don't worry, I have offices set up, same building, just a different, different job now. Mm-hmm. 
And it would also later come out that Crippen may or may not have been continuing to experience significant financial difficulties because his account actually went into overdraft mm. that day. But a few days later, he had the fun he had the funds to bring you know, his account back into the green. And so maybe he knew that that was coming, but he was definitely still experiencing financial difficulties on top of like having to rearrange jobs and all of that. So like, you know, you could suffice to say that like lots of stressors. Yeah, there were stressors. Things were not going great at the Crippen household, but they didn't tell anybody about this shit, you know? Right. So the first indications that Cora was gone didn't actually appear until February 2nd. Holly's receptionist and mistress of three years at this point, Ethel Leneve, found a stack of letters on her desk that morning with a note which read, Bell Elmore has gone to America. Will you kindly favor me by handling the enclosed packet and letters to Miss May as soon as she arrives at her office, with my compliments? Shall be in later when we can arrange a pleasant little evening. So Cora was the treasurer of the Music Hall Ladies Guild, and Melinda May was the secretary, so that... That's the context of this letter. That's the Miss May. Okay. Yeah. Along with the letters were documents that Cora needed in her role as treasurer. The letters themselves were addressed to Melinda May and then to the committee as a whole. Both were written in Holly's handwriting, but included Cora's signature in his handwriting, which I think is an odd mm. inclusion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But on Melinda's letter, he actually indicated that he had written the letter by signing it PPHHC. So that's Holly Harvey Crippen. And then Melinda's letter in full read, Dear Miss May, Illness of a near relative has called me to America on only a few hours' notice, so I must ask you bring my resignation as treasurer before the meeting today so that a new treasurer can be elected at once. You will appreciate my haste when I tell you I have not been to bed all night, packing and getting ready to go. I shall hope to see you again in a few months later, but I cannot spare a moment to call on you before I go. I wish you everything nice until I return to London again. And now goodbye, with love hastily. Yours, Belle Elmore, PPHHC. And then the letter to the committee read, Dear friends, please forgive me a hasty letter and any inconvenience I may cause you, but I have just had news of the illness of a near relative, and at only a few hours' notice I am obliged to go to America. Under the circumstances, I cannot return for several months and therefore beg you to accept this as a formal resignation letter resigning from this date my honorable treasurership of the MHLG. I am closing the checkbook and deposit book for the immediate use of my successor and to save any delay, I beg to suggest that you vote to suspend the usual rules of election and elect today a new honorable treasurer. I hope some months later to be with you again, and in the meantime, wish the Guild every success and ask my good friends and pals to accept my sincere and loving wishes for their own personal welfare. Believe me, yours faithfully, Belle Elmore. So Ethel sees these letters and she asks Holly what happened. And he tells her that Cora finally left him, which she had threatened to do all the time. And according to Ethel, Holly also said that Cora had left while he was gone on... February 1st, and so he hadn't actually seen her go, and he wasn't aware of any luggage or belongings that she took with her. He just went, and he was like, Cora's gone. Cora's just gone. Mm. She finally fucking left. She's just gone now. Yeah, Yeah. she finally did it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, while in the office, he reached into his pocket, according to Ethel, and pulled out 
some of Cora's jewelry and then gave it to Ethel. Just like right there, like, oh, I have some of these jewels on me. Would you oh. like them? Oh, my God. And again, that's if you believe Ethel's version of the story. But, you know, it does seem a bit bold, regardless of whether or not Cora left because she finally left Holly or if she was disappeared in some way. Like, either way, mm-hmm. it's just kind of like... She's been gone so, a, a day suspect or two. Fuck. She's been gone a day. Why are you giving away her things? Yeah, yeah. And it could be, you know, you could read it as maybe he was pissed off at Cora for leaving him. So this was his getting back at her. Sure. But then after this, it was confirmed that, you know, fairly soon after this whole interaction, he actually did pawn some of Cora's jewelry. And, you know, maybe he did this because he had killed her in order to cash out on some of her clothes and jewelry because she was causing the financial stress. And then Ethel... I mean, because he was able to bring his account back into the green. Yes, he was. He was. But then Ethel moved into 39 Hill Drop Crest, like, pretty soon after, like, the evening of February 2nd. She slept over and then moved in pretty soon after. And she started wearing the remaining Mm. clothes and furs of Cora's. So, okay, well, make yourself right at home. <laughs> I know, I know. But the the February 2nd sleepover, that's if you if you believe Holly, is that that's the first time that Ethel came over and stayed the night was February 2nd. But if you believe Ethel, she could be telling the truth, or maybe she just wanted to distance herself and not look quite as, like, bold. And so she said that it was three or four days later, you know, when the bed sheets were a little bit colder Either that she way. stayed over. I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Either way. (laughs) Yeah. But so Cora's friends at the Guild and the Martinettis, they get these letters and they're like, she just left? She's just gone? And so they, they attempt to write her because they're her friends. And they don't hear back. And so finally, Holly wrote Paul and Clara Martinetti a letter on March 21st, which read, Dear Clara and Paul, forgive me not running in during the week, but I have really been so upset by very bad news from Belle that I did not feel equal to talking about anything. And now I have had just a cable saying she is so dangerously ill with double pleural pneumonia that I'm considering if I had better not go over it once. I do not want to worry you with my troubles, but I felt I must explain why I had not been to see you. I will try and run in during the week and have a chat. Hope both of you are well and love you and best wishes. Yours sincerely, Peter. Yes. And for some reason, Holly went by Peter with some of his friends, especially people who he was like okay. mutual friends with, with Cora. And I read in one of the books I used as reference that like Cora maybe didn't like that his first name was Holly. And so she was just like, no, you're Peter now. So he has some correspondences. <laughs> All right. Peter. And it's not because he's like trying okay. to. Yeah, he's just Peter. Trying to be somebody different. It's yeah. just his name sometimes. Yeah. Got it. Now, this is still weird because she's gone and is apparently still in communication with him to some degree in order to tell him she has double pleural pneumonia. And this all sounds suspicious. So in reality, Holly was attempting to make plans to leave for America. And this was kind of his excuse. He'd given his landlord a three-month notice for the house at 39 Hilldrop Crescent, and he was trying to get rid of the things in the house that belonged to him and Cora in preparation for a move. So he was making moves. He was trying to get the fuck out of London. Paul Martinetti didn't know any of this. As far as they knew, you know, Holly's still just kind of waiting for Cora to come back to their rocky marriage. Like, he has no intentions of doing anything. I don't think... 
that Paul or many other people knew about Ethel. So he, does, he doesn't know. He genuinely thinks that Cora went to America because a relative was sick and now she's sick. And so he tells Holly, like, yeah, you should definitely go to America right away and be with your sick wife. But as luck would have it, it would seem Holly couldn't board a ship in time to reach Cora's bedside because on March 24th, mm. the Martinettis received this telegram from Dr. Crippen. Belle died yesterday at six o'clock. Please phone Annie. She'll be away about a week. Yep. She's dead now. She's dead now. Mm-hmm. So Holly sent this telegram when he was actually en route to France with Ethel, who would later claim ignorance about the death of Mrs. Crippen or knowing about it until their return to London five days later. So they're out on this trip together. All she knows is that Cora, again, is in America with an ailing relative. She's sick. And then it's not until they've been on a trip over, you know, not overseas, but abroad for five days that he's mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, Cora died. And it's like, <laughs> what? And again, that's if you believe <laughs> yeah. Ethel, that she genuinely right. didn't know anything. Right. So now Cora's friends, as far as they know, she's dead. And they're like, oh, my fucking God. Cora died? My friend is dead. Yeah. Which is, like, not unusual, right? Turn of the 20th century, she totally could have totally gotten pneumonia in America and died. Not mm -hmm. completely sure. unreasonable. But they're like, sure. okay, can we, like, have a funeral? Can we say goodbye? And Holly's mm -hmm. like, well, no, because she was cremated, so there's not going to be a funeral. Suspicious. Okay. <laughs> Super suspicious. And so her friends are like, yeah, we think this is suspicious. They do some of their own you know, 1900s investigating, and they somehow figure mm -hmm. out that Holly's son, you know, Otto, the kid who he just left in California, mm -hmm. was somehow involved mm -hmm. in all of this because oh. the address of Cora's death or the obituary or some something that they got from, like, papers or telegrams or something was Otto's address. And so they're like, oh, okay. Oh. We'll ask Otto. And so they write Otto and he's like, Cora hasn't been here. I didn't even know she was dead. <laughs> and so then they're like, all right. Hey. So the two storylines are not checking out at all. Well, then the friends are like, hey, Holly, we talked to your son and he says that he has no idea what happened with his stepmom. And Holly, he explains it away. He's like, I just used his address as like a point of contact in California because I'm overseas and it just made it easier. You know, it's a you know, address that I could use for all of this. Right. They didn't buy that either. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so they they actually got in contact with Scotland Yard and they were like, Scotland Yard needs to investigate this. And so the okay. yard sent Chief Inspector Walter Dew, who had actually been involved with the hunt for Jack the Ripper 20 years beforehand. Oh, so he's kind of a big fucking deal. Yeah, he's kind of a big deal. And so he goes to Hilldrop Crescent on July 8th, 1910, and he, you know, is like, hey, Holly, I have had people contact me because they're suspicious about the, you know, disappearance or the death of your wife. And while Dew is there, Holly's like, okay, all right, let me just lay it all out. I did lie to Cora's friends because I just didn't want a scandal to come out because she left me for another man. And so he tells him this whole other story and he admits to having lied. 
And <laughs> when, when he's telling him all of this, Ethel's with him because they, they were still at the living. Yeah. They're still living together at 39 Hell Drop. They hadn't managed to move yet. They'd been living together for about six months and they were planning to move, but the apartment they were planning to move into wasn't ready. And so like, I don't know. It just, it still looks suspicious, but Holly's just being very like, let me tell you what actually happened, like man to man. He, you know, explains how he was embarrassed that Cora had left him and she'd been cheating on him. Never mind that he'd been cheating on Cora, like, you know, sure, sexism and all that. But right. he's like, yeah, I lied to her friends and I told him, I told them that she was dead. I did do that, which to me is still like fucked up because you don't have Instagram or Facebook or anything. Like as far as they know, she's dead. You she's are dead. Cutting off all of those friendships, right. like right. It's a fucked up thing to do, but right. it's not illegal. It's not illegal to lie about your wife's death. <laughs> it's just a shitty. I suppose thing to not, do. but it's it's a very shitty thing to do. <laughs> and so he like shows he shows Dew around the house. And he's like, look, I don't have anything to hide. Here's my house. He even actually takes him down into the coal cellar. Like, everything's on display. I have nothing to hide. And Dew suspected he was still being lied to on some level, especially since Ethel was there. And, like, that's still kind of suspicious. Like, she moved in right away. That's, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. They actually, I don't think, said that they were married. They were just like, we're real close. Boyfriend, girlfriend. I don't know. So they didn't say that they were married. But he was like, something fucking weird is happening here. Something was off. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's illegal, but I don't like it. And so Dew leaves. He he can't confirm anything, but he just doesn't feel good about it. The following day, July 9th, he, he comes back because he's like, I have some follow-up questions that I want to ask this guy. And he shows up and Holly and Ethel are gone, but they have help who answered the door. And so the help don't they don't know what's happening they're like oh i don't mm. know i think they like went to the movies or something like that they don't know that they have fled london <laughs> ethel and holly have now fled london completely and according to ethel holly had convinced her that they needed to just up and leave because he was like look i admitted to the police that Cora's alive, which means that the scandal that I was trying to prevent by saying that she was dead is going to come out. And that scandal is going to mm. look really bad for me, but it's going to look worse for you. It's going to mm. just completely ruin us. And so we got to just get the fuck out of here. I think they like went to Belgium or something like that. And okay. then they were planning to just fully leave Europe. But they're not in London anymore. The servants at... Hilldrop Crescent, they don't have any option but to let this Scotland Yard officer sure. in. Even what are they the going to do about it? Right. The people who live there aren't there, but it's like, what authorities do they have to say no? <laughs> right, right. And so he was able to search the home more thoroughly without Holly and Ethel being there. And then he returned the following Tuesday on July 12th and continued the search. But it wasn't until Wednesday the 13th of July that they made their bombshell discovery. Beneath the stones of the coal cellar, Dew found decomposing human body parts, including a heart, both lungs, and two and a half inches of lower windpipe, along with liver, mm -hmm. kidneys, stomach, pancreas, and spleen, and then human hair and some bloody scraps of cloth. 
Big yikes. Big, yeah. I mean, Scotland Yard is, like, horrified, but they're also like, yes, I fucking knew it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Knew something was up here. (laughs) Right. And so immediately, the police start circulating photographs of Holly and Ethel in the newspapers. You know, these people are wanted, wanted for murder. The newspapers began running stories about the murder and mutilation of Cora Crippen. And to the delight and horror of readers who flocked to what was now a crime scene, they didn't even have a full corpse to be examined by the police surgeon, which I think is the coroner. It might be a little different. But, like... They really hadn't seen a grotesque crime like this since the Ripper. Like, it was it was awful, but it was also like, oh, what happened, you know? Right. That kind right. of thing. And so the, the two doctors that were important are this police surgeon, Dr. Marshall, and a consulting surgeon named Dr. Pepper. Oh, love it. <laughs> so these parts are obviously super important to this forensic investigation. And at the beginning, it was... It was a rough investigation because there's not a full body. There was not even enough parts to tell whether or not the body was male or female. And the examiner noted that in the original examination. But he was convinced that the victim had been murdered and that the perpetrator of the crime had attempted to cover the remains with lime. And that's important, I guess, but it doesn't matter that much because it's 1910. And so the police actually... (laughs) When they were digging everything out of the coal cellar, they're like, oh, God, it stinks in here. This is, it's really hard to work in this, like, big <laughs> coal cellar with this body. Decomposing body, yeah. And so they poured disinfectant and carbolic acid on the putrefying remains in order to reduce the odors. And then they also poured some more disinfectant on them when they were in the morgue because they were just sitting out in the morgue at room temperature just decomposing. Oh <laughs> Again, it's 1910. Yeah, we're not (laughs) preserving crime scenes the way we do nowadays. Right. With with all care of every little, like, crumb. Like, no, let's just fuck this shit up. (laughs) Like, disinfect everything. It smells too bad. I cannot be inconvenienced with this evidence. (laughs) No one told me police work was going to stink so bad. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This case was kind of like the first trial by media, right? I mean, you'd had the Ripper case. But Mm -hmm. it didn't go to trial. And so the fact that they were like, we have Holly and we have Ethel. And if we find them, we can prosecute. Like, it was huge. It It was enormous. And the crime was immediately, widely, and fervently reported on. Jack the Ripper, it was only 20 years beforehand. Like, this was still kind of fresh in people's minds. And Inspector Dew was on the case. So... I mean, if anything, he's mm. like, I'm not mm-hmm. gonna, I'm not gonna relive the Ripper murders. Like, we are going to get the guy this time, right? Catch this person, yeah, right. You can read like all of these like firsthand, not firsthand, but like original newspaper accounts. You know, like in the New York Times and places like that, and so you can just see how crazy the media coverage was back then. Because even Crippen's poor geriatric father who was being supported financially by Crippen but was essentially living off of charity you know except for that in Los Angeles at a boarding house they found him in LA and they like hounded him for a statement on his son's behavior Mm. and his disappearance and then the trial afterwards it was nasty it was really nasty it was really gross they like called him a sad pathetic figure like in their headlines and it was bad So now Ethel and Holly, they have fled. They have the body. Everybody knows what they look like because their photograph is everywhere. And then in another historic first, 
Scotland Yard received a report on an apparent matched likeness of Holly and Ethel from the captain of an ocean liner that was in the process of crossing oh, the shit. Atlantic. This boat was called the Montrose. Oh. And it was one of the few ships in the entire world that had been equipped with a new device called the Marconi Wireless. And with the Marconi Wireless, you could talk to other locations, some ships, mostly places on land that also had wireless capabilities, and you could receive and transmit, I think, wireless telegraphs. So this crazy new wireless Oh, thing. wow. That's yeah. huge. It was yeah. huge. It actually, yeah. like, played kind of a big part, like, later with the sinking of the Titanic because they, like, wouldn't receive messages from people who didn't have the Marconi and it, like, delayed help or something crazy like that. Mm. It was, okay. yeah. This was a big deal, though, because this was the first time that, like, somebody had participated in a criminal investigation wirelessly. And the telegraph right. that was received from the Montrose read, Have strong suspicion that Crippen, London cellar murderer and accomplice are amongst saloon passengers. Mustache shaved off, growing beard. Accomplice dressed as boy, voice, manner, and build undoubtedly a girl. Mm -hmm. So the two passengers he suspected were going by the names Mr. Robinson and his teenage son, who happened to be a deaf mute and couldn't speak. And the captain noticed that the boy's clothes didn't seem to fit right, and he was always gripping tight to his father's hand. Like, something was just not right between these two. And he actually took a photo of them to show police when he was able, but it was like, just from behind and just showed like two skinny men but it i don't mm. know there's just so many echoes of like where police investigation would eventually go with like amber alerts and shit like that you know sure so despite the fact that there had been other sightings you know on land and stuff like that of the couple that turned out to be false and having no way to respond to the telegram chief inspector dew got on another faster ship called the Laurentic and intended to intercept the Montrose before it reached its destination in Canada, and then Holly and Ethel would be able to escape. He just has such loose foundation for thinking that this is them, and he's still like, I'm going to get on a boat that's mm -hmm. crossing the Atlantic, and I'm going to go I'm get gonna them. I'm going to do this. Yeah. yeah. And the world, because of the Marconi wireless and because of the coverage of this case, they were reading about the chase. I mean, except for the people aboard ships who couldn't access newspapers at the time. So Ethel and Holly didn't know, but everyone in London, the New York Times, everybody knew that Dew was on some sort of ship and Holly and Ethel were on another ship crossing the Atlantic and, oh, is he going to reach them in time or are they going to get to Canada? Like, it was big. It was almost like 24-hour news coverage. It was as close as you could get to that in 1910. And the captain of the Montrose, Commander Henry George Kendall, had access to speak with the newspapers via the Marconi. So he was able to mm. feed them information every day in order to give them something to write about, essentially, right. in this coverage. Like, I mean, they, they couldn't know what ship that the couple was on because they still had some sense back then that, like, you can't release all of the information, right? Right, 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 right. But they knew, like, really weird, minute details, like... Holly was reading a thriller about a London murder called Before Just Men, and they knew that he was reading that, like, in his free time on the boat. It's insane. It's insane, right. like, the kind of the shit that they were The details that on. they were sharing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then it's crazy that this was correct, right? And that Dew was like, I'm going to go, and I'm going to intercept them, and he did. And on July 31st, the Laurentic caught up to the Montrose, and both ships dropped anchor off the coast of Quebec. Dew 
changed ships. He boarded the ship, like, still in the ocean, and arrested Holly and Ethel. Wow. And then the pair was immediately brought back to London. I mean, there was a couple days where they had to, like, let everybody else off and then get on sure. a different ship. But they were they were now arrested and they were being held and they were brought back to London and they were immediately put on trial for the murder of Cora Crippen. And Ethel was actually also tried. She was tried as an accessory to murder after the fact. So they arrive in Liverpool on August 28th and then the court proceedings began the next day at the Old Bailey in London. And the trial was just the height of drama. I think Cora Crippen would be very pleased with how much drama was at her murder <laughs> trial. <laughs> 5,000 people applied to be seated in the courtroom during the trial. And of course, it's not nearly that fucking big. There were 80 seats, right? And they partially- No, but all of these people were drawn in yes. by all of the coverage that had been going on. So they all wanted to get a piece of it and get a little bit closer to the ringside to yes. the theatrics. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And they were able to partially solve their whole ADC issue by they had morning session tickets and they had afternoon session tickets. And it's like, this is a trial for murder. And you're acting like it's some sort of like- matinee show Movie or like a or ma- show. yeah exactly tons of people were there sir arthur conan doyle and the actor sir john hare were in the audience and then a vaudeville actress actually sat next to the judge at his bench during some of the afternoon proceedings <laughs> yeah wow. it was it was a fucking circus and then the newspapers are all still like I mean, they're in town now. It's easy to report on now. Mm-hmm. You can send reporters to see what's going on. So the Times ran front page reports on the Crippen case nearly daily. And the sensationalism was heightened even further when exactly a week before the trial was supposed to completely begin, the inquest has been done. We know, you know, what information we're taking to trial. The remains of Cora Crippen were buried in a public funeral with her name on the headstone. So... Did they really need a trial? She's dead. He fled. Right. Like, I just, the idea that you could have something be, like, unbiased at this point is just, it's an impossibility. Impossible, yeah. Right. But so, the trial officially begins October 18th, 1910. Rippon pleads not guilty to murder. He maintains that Cora ran off with a lover. And as far as he knew, she was still alive. Like he, you know, he even though that, he told everybody she was dead, he did and admitted to do <laughs> that he made that up. Yeah, he, so he admitted still. that he'd lied before. She's, I think she my lied. bad. I don't actually know. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was kind of a dick, but she <laughs> left me. So, <laughs> yeah, and he said that he he fled because he panicked because do mm. visited and there was going to be a scandal. And he said that he didn't know anything about the remains in the cellar or why they were there. So that's his position. It's your house. <laughs> right? I know. So the prosecution then, who's had all this time to set up and they have not been on a boat <laughs> crossing the Atlantic. <laughs> right. They argued that Dr. Crippen murdered Cora because he was having an affair with Ethel and the Crippens were having money problems. So two birds, one stone. Kill mm-hmm. Cora. Everything's solved. They emphasized that he had lied to Cora's friends and admitted it. And they strongly suggested that his and Ethel's flight to Canada was to avoid capture. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. The prosecution then brought Bruce Miller, Cora's old boyfriend, to the Old Bailey from Chicago. 
Like, he wasn't living in London. He was actually living in Chicago, and they brought him across the Atlantic to be in this trial. He explained to the jury, he's like, I'm living in Chicago now. I was previously acquainted with Cora. He said that he was not ever romantically involved with her, so I don't know how much you can trust him. But he was married and living in Chicago, so... Whoever she didn't she, run off with him. She didn't run off with him. And the last time he says he talked to her was 1904. So now there's another hole in Holly's story. But more important than any of that, that was just sort of to be like, Holly's lying. But let's get down to what actually happened. They had forensic evidence. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. And this was new because this is 1910, right? So right. forensic evidence is like newfangled shit. They didn't have a confession, a full body... Any reproductive organs in the body to determine sex, and they didn't have fingers for prints. Nor, notably, was there any blood or blood stains found in the coal cellar or anywhere else at 39 Hilldrop Crescent. But they did have skin with a distinctive scar. They had intact internal organs for the organs they did have, strands of hair, distinctively patterned scraps of cloth with buttons, and they also had chemical evidence of the presence of hyoscine hydrobromide in the recovered remains. Hyoscine hydrobromide is the international generic name for scopolamine, which is an anti-muscarinic drug commonly used today for the prevention and treatment of motion sickness by inhibiting acetylcholine at the muscarinic receptors of the body. And we've talked somewhat extensively about acetylcholine and anticholinergic drugs in previous episodes. But for those of you who are new, welcome to season five. Uh, let's do a quick recap. Please. Acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter that motor neurons release in order to activate muscles in the body. So if you inhibit these receptors or if you activate them, you can cause paralysis or muscle spasms, right? So you'll either... One, one way or the other. One way or the other. Nicotine has specific nicotinic acetylcholine receptors that binds it to the brain. You can go listen to the nicotine episode for more information on that. Nerve agents like sarin, which we covered last season when we talked about omshinrikyo, cause a buildup of acetylcholine because it inhibits acetylcholine esterase. So acetylcholine builds up and it causes the what symptoms? Venus? <laughs> I'm doing a quick pop quiz on you. What does sarin cause? Oh, sludge. Sludge, yeah. What is sludge? It's the uh, the lacrimation, mm -hmm. urination. Mm -hmm. Oh, no. <laughs> Salivation, lacrimation, urination, diarrhea. D diarrhea. I was going to say defecation, same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but loose, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Gastrointestinal distress and... Emesis. <laughs> Emesis. And Throwing also, the fuck up. It also causes paralysis, so it causes that flaccidity of muscles. Mm -hmm. Anyone who has taken scopolamine for car sickness or maybe as a post-operative antiemetic, they may have noticed that they become sleepy or had blurred vision or dry mouth, which is kind of like the opposite of the sludge symptoms because you're breaking down acetylcholine. It's an anticholinergic compound. Now, in Western medicine, scopolamine originally found use in obstetrics. And I'm not sure if this is because it's an alkaloid and they knew it was an alkaloid and were trying to exploit some of those properties, or if it was because it was known in indigenous medicine to cause drowsiness. But I do know 
that scopolamine was first described used in conjunction with morphine for delivery of babies. Mm. And this, okay. uh, this combination could be used to reduce pain when the cervix was dilated or sutures were needed. And in cases where anesthesia was required, the scopolamine-morphine combo allowed for less inhi- inhalational anesthesia like chloroform, which is what they were using at the time. And so they were like, it will decrease both maternal and fetal mortality. If we just have this combo, we don't need as much chloroform. It kills pain. Good stuff. We've talked about this briefly before, but there was a lot of misogyny in gynecology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not just surgical intervention for births when this was employed. It wasn't just your cervix is dilated or you need sutures, so we're going to give you this combo. It was just because you are in labor. They were like, we're just going to give this to you because this is what we do when you go into labor. And so a lot of children came into the world when their mothers were locked out, knocked out, or they weren't necessarily knocked out. They'd still be awake and screaming and in pain, but they couldn't recall that pain later. And this was called the twilight sleep. Mm. A lot of babies were born when their mothers were in twilight sleep. And in 1910, this was still common practice. It wasn't actually going to go away for another couple decades. Eventually, it was abandoned because it didn't reduce pain as much as it reduced memory of the pain um, <laughs> by inducing amnesia. So that's not great. You're kind of just, no. You're just in pain, damage. but not going to remember it later. Yeah. Yeah. And because it relaxes those muscles, it reduces necessary uterine contractions for giving birth. And so it caused asphyxia in some babies on their way out, and it was determined to not actually be helpful in reducing infant mortality, but actually increased it for a period. Because they would get stuck in the birth canal, essentially? Yeah, because you can't push them out. out. Yeah, that's that's not a good time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like I would be remiss in this scopolamine episode if we didn't address the illicit uses and then debunk them. Scopolamine comes from the nightshade flower Brugmansia, which is a pretty trumpet-like flower. It's related to Datura, actually. The drug extracted from this is also called Burundanga, or Devil's Breath, which was covered in a Vice documentary filmed in Colombia, and they called it the world's scariest drug. And I was going to go into a little breakdown of it in this episode, and then I realized, you know what? We need to do a whole microdose on this documentary, actually, because there's just a lot to cover. So I'm not going to go super in-depth into this. If you all are interested in hearing that, that will be this month's microdose. Keep a lookout for that on Patreon. You can get the audio at the $2 tier, and you can get the video that accompanies it at the $5 tier. But briefly for this episode, they say that it turns people into hypersusceptible zombies. And spoiler alert, that's not true. But I will tell you what is true about it. (laughs) What's important to this episode is that an overdose of scopolamine is possible, and the range is kind of hard to determine. Children are, as with most things, more susceptible to an overdose, but adults can experience symptoms of acute overdose with as little as 4 to 5 drops of a 0.25 scopolamine hydrobromide eye solution. Route of administration is important when you put things in your eyes tends to just get right up in there, right? Mm -hmm. Overdose is indicated by anticholinergic syndrome, which presents as weakness in the lower limbs, visual disturbances, hallucinations, blurred vision, confusion, convulsions, arrhythmias, and 
This is interesting and is related to that Vice documentary, but possible extended psychosis mm. and agitation. As elevated levels of scopolamine actually cause CNS stimulation rather than depression, which is what happens with those lower levels. Mm. So that's an interesting difference. That is interesting that with the higher dose, it acts differently. Yeah. Fatal amounts of scopolamine are estimated to be around 10 milligrams for children and somewhere between 50 to 100 milligrams for adults. Back in the courtroom, the Crown argued that Dr. Crippen used a solution of scopolamine purchased from the chemist on either January 15th or 17th, 1910. Crippen always signed the poison's register, which anyone purchasing drugs like scopolamine would be required to sign. And, of course, this is without an ID or anything, so you could just sign it. Sign somebody else's name. Joe Blow. Yeah, Yeah. Harry Butts or whatever. Right. And you have to give a reason for your purchase. So you could go in and you could buy arsenic and you could say, I'm using this as rat poison, right? Mm -hmm. So he had previously gone in and bought cocaine, morphine, mercury from this chemist, and he usually just said, like, homeopathic purposes. And that wasn't unusual. What was unusual about his hyacinth purchase was the amount that he requested, which was five grains. And this is a gram of scopolamine, and a gram is a thousand milligrams. So that is definitely enough to kill an adult. Ten times over. And it's about five times more than this particular chemist usually kept in stock because Mm. it's so deadly, right? Right. So this chemist's shop actually had to call a wholesaler to get the amount that Dr. Crippen requested, and then he came back and picked up his purchase on January 19th, and they knew all of this. They had receipts for this. With that amount of hyacinth, Dr. Crippen could have easily poisoned Cora's food or drink the night of the 31st or the morning of the 1st, or injected her with it via needle. And then after she was out, he could have used his medical knowledge to fillet her body with the same surgical precision that they'd seen in murders such as the Ripper murders that haunted Whitechapel. And back in this time, what was the most typical route of administration for the scopolamine? Like, I know we have like the dermal patches today for like Mm -hmm. motion sickness, but what would it have been back then? Back then, it would have either been IV for, like, that scopolamine-morphine combo Mm -hmm. for the twilight sleep or orally. And he actually would say in court that he was making an oral preparation. Gotcha. Okay. And so now we enter the prosecution's star expert, day three of the trial. And this is 33-year-old forensic pathologist Bernard Spilsbury. We said it a little bit before, but forensic pathology, it was a new field. Forensics is new. It was basically just over 20 years old at the time of the trial. I mean, there had been medical examiners that were involved in the Ripper murders 20 years before and a little bit since. But, you know, they were like, they were people in their morgues during trials. They weren't super charismatic. And the information they relayed to the jury was information that the people on the jury were like kind of unfamiliar with. You Mm, know, it was... mm -hmm. Nothing like today where you have the CSI effect on juries and they... Right. People have at least some baseline knowledge of what forensics and crime scene investigation is. Right. And in this trial, I mean, they... People don't even really have a very deep understanding of the law. I mean, they know, you know, like, don't steal and don't kill people. But, like, when they were asking Holly, like... What did you think that Dew was going to arrest you for? Like, why were you fleeing him? What were you worried about? He was like, I don't know. I just thought he was going to arrest me, like, 
because of a suspicion that I had something to do with Cora's disappearance. And they were like, well, what do you think that means? And he was like, I don't, legally, I don't know what that means. Right. Like, they think I disappeared her. And right. so he didn't know, like, you know, he knew he knew murder could be something. But he was like, other than that, I didn't murder her, so. So I don't, but I know that I did something wrong. Right. I feel like I did something wrong. Right. Like, I think you, I think you think I did I something did wrong. wrong. <laughs> right. And so juries, they just, like, they had no real way of, like, digesting the information that medical examiners and forensic pathologists gave to them during courts. But then you enter Dr. Spilsbury, and he's absolutely magnetic in the courtroom. He knew how to deliver information in a way that made sense and was convincing to a layperson. What he'd received for this case was a pile of organs and some scraps of cloth. But what he made with his findings was nothing short of a Sherlock Holmes-esque tale that was truer than fiction. And with the sensationalism around the case and the newspapers, like, it was just match made in heaven almost. Mm -hmm. Match made in hell, really, is what yeah. it sounds like. But. Yeah. So, Spillsbury claimed the scar segment attached to the stomach skin found in the coal cellar showed a distinctive scar. Cora's scar that anyone mm. close to her or who had access to her medical records could identify as the scar from her hysterectomy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they were also, like, they did a little bit of explanation. They were like, we definitely think it's scar from the stomach because you can tell, like, kind of further down there's, like, you know, essentially happy trail hairs. Like, there's okay. pubic hairs yeah. attached to this. And, like, both sides agreed with that. Both sides agreed this is stomach skin. He also told the jury that the cloth fragments found with the remains matched pair of Holly's pajamas. Dr. Pepper and Dr. Marshall, who conducted the original examination on the remains in the cloth, both agreed with this. And then <laughs> there was nothing unbiased about this. But then the judge, he tells the jury, he's like, I agree with the doctors. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be a no-no, but okay. <laughs> right. But he was like, you can tell. They're right. Like, look at, look at this scrap and right. look at his pajamas. It's an obvious match. Obviously. Which, yeah. But he was just, he was vocal that he agreed with them for the whole trial. But then at the end, he would tell the jury, he'd be like, it's your opinion that's important. It's what you think. <laughs> so Dr. Crippen's defense argued that the scar, big air quotes, in question, couldn't have even been a scar because there were hair follicles present, which, I mean, you can look at any of your own scars right now and be like, oh, yeah, there's nothing in those. There's no fingerprints. Mm -hmm. There's no hair follicles. And they asserted that what they were actually looking at was a deformation in the skin that was a skin fold, which probably wouldn't have formed on, like, a full body. You know, you wouldn't get that fold anywhere in your skin just from sitting. But it could form when the skin was removed from the body and allowed to sit in an unnatural position and then dried slightly, as skin does, mm. and it dried into a fold. Mm. And everybody was looking at these cross sections of this scar or this skin fold, whatever it was, and these... Cross sections were made into microscopic slides that you can actually still find pictures of because oh, well. they they took pictures of them whenever they were able to. They held on to them. And so you can see what this scar looks like. And we'll probably go ahead and throw those up on Instagram. But they were like, this is just, it's a fold. It's not a scar. And it doesn't help to identify anybody because it's meaningless. Like, it, it was created after death. Like, right. you can't prove anybody's identity with this, which is what the Crown was trying to say was like, this we is our smoking gun. This is our smoking gun. Yeah. And the defense also had some thoughts on the toxicology, which, honestly, I probably have more interest in than the jury because Crippen's lawyers and doctors weren't as magnetic as the Crown's, right? 
And some of them were like kind of upset that they had to testify. Some of Holly's people had been reassured by the lawyers. Like, we just, we want to know what your opinion is. You won't have to come to court. And then they came to court and they were like, I was told I wouldn't have to be here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like, they didn't, they didn't do very well for him in his case. Mm. And then on top of that, like, they didn't shine and they didn't have flashy deductions. They were just like, it's a skin fold. Like, what? Are you right. dumb? It's a skin fold. One of the experts who testified on Crippen's behalf was a guy named Dr. Alexander Winter Blythe, who was a chemist and physician who actually wrote several editions of a book called Poisons, Their Effects and Detection. He actually testified that in the course of his preparations for the trial, he found information which would require updates to a significant part of his book, which may have previously supported the prosecution's argument about Hyacinth and the remains. And this was used against him because mm. they were like, your own book supports what we're saying, and now you're changing it. Change, he's like, right. Yeah, because I was looking into it for this case, and more stuff has come up since my last edition of the book, which was 15 years ago. Well, and it takes, and it takes a big man to say, like, when you're wrong and when you need to make a rewrite. Right. Right, but it it did not look good in court. Like, it's, yeah, I personally am like, oh, you know, good on you for identifying, like, the gaps in your own logic. Mm -hmm. But, like, being on the jury, it was not impressive. Yeah. But anyhow, so the whole debate in this guy's research and with his book and for this case was that back in the 1910s, Chemists and doctors believed that the putrefaction of nitrogen compounds in animal tissue produced what are called tomains, which were a kind of, quote, animal alkaloid. Chemistry history nerds, like myself and our fans, I'm sure, who are <laughs> listening to this, they might be familiar with tomain poisoning as a 19th century diagnosis, which was later broadly recharacterized as bacterial food poisoning. And so you can read Deborah Blum's book, The Poison Squad. I think she mentions it, but... I feel like it was Teddy Roosevelt went to Congress about the condition of, like, canned foods that were being given to the army. And he mm. was like, it's causing tomain poisoning among our soldiers. Mm. And it was food poisoning, right? Gotcha. But these are what these tomains are. Gotcha. In 1910, they were still attempting to distinguish between animal alkaloids like tomains and plant alkaloids. Which is not a distinction that can be made because, for one, tomains don't exist. But also, like, an alkaloid is an alkaloid and it kind of doesn't depend on where it's from. You know? Okay. So it was a very weird distinction they were trying to make. But they thought that if the tomain animal alkaloids were present, that those would interfere with the detection of plant alkaloids like strychnine and colchicine. Mm. And so that's important because... Say somebody is killed by strychnine, it could be fucked with because of the animal alkaloids produced in the body because of putrefaction, and then you wouldn't be able to tell that there's a lethal amount of strychnine in the body. Gotcha. And so that's the it issue. It kind of basically, like, blurs the confirmation of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so Dr. Blythe, the author of this book and the guy who's arguing for Dr. Crippen, had previously agreed that it would be impossible to confuse a vegetable alkaloid for an animal alkaloid because the animal alkaloids were similar but could be identified through rigorous testing. So you could have these different tests where you could prove, like, no, this is a vegetable alkaloid because they didn't have it, like, now where you can look at it structurally. You kind of had to break it into its families and then figure out, like, what it was most similar to. And then if you wanted to confirm it was one of, like, these three 
like daughters of a family, essentially, you could do a specific test for that, you know, false, false, true. Okay, it's this one. It's hyacinth or something. And so he was saying previously he believed that that was true. But now he believed, based on information from Italian chemists who were doing work with tomains, that it was very possible that some putrefactive substance was present in human remains recovered from the coal cellar and that the Crown's chemists had erroneously identified these alkaloids as vegetable alkaloids in their terminology. Mm. But they were actually just... It was nothing. He couldn't even replicate what he had found. Like, following all of the steps that they had used to say, yes, this is hyacinth and we term- determined that it is, he was like, I am. I can't have, do that. I can't replicate it. Like, I think that you guys found nothing. There's mm. just nothing. And, I mean, this is on top of the fact that they poured disinfectant and carbolic acid sure. on it. So it's like, sure. what are you going Really going. Yeah, really, what are you finding? When- right. When we disinfected the entire body of evidence that we had. <laughs> and so I know that that's like getting into like a weird conversation. And the jury felt like this was a weird conversation, too. They're like, I don't know what you're talking about. You're like contradicting yourself. And the Crown had a really good like explanation of the tests that they did to confirm that it was hyacinth. We're kind of just bored and confused with you guys talking. And so the doctors, all these chemists, they were put in a separate room to discuss, you know, Italian chemistry and what was going on. And they never came back. <laughs> like, I read the court proceedings in the, in a book of court proceedings. And they just, they were like, you you guys can go talk this out, but we've heard what we need to hear. And they just never And then never they never back. came back. No. And so they, they went out for their their cigarettes and pack of smokes and <laughs> never to be heard from again. Exactly. And so <laughs> you have the jury who's like, okay, so they're saying that it's not based on chemistry we don't understand. The Crown is saying that it is, and they explained it pretty well. Mm-hmm. And there is no conclusion to that. So then the prosecution calls in the maker of the pajamas that the scrap of cloth <laughs> is supposed to resemble. Based on both the pattern and the tag found on Holly's pants, Holly was able to say that the scrap of pajama cloth found with the remains did, in fact, resemble a pair of pajamas that he owned. And they were able to identify the manufacturer. And he agrees with all of this. He's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, those look like my pajama mm-hmm. pants. Which is like, yeah, if I go to Target and somebody else goes to Target, they're going to end up with the same shirt. And they're going to be like, sure. nice shirt. Right. But he's like, yeah, totally. I agree with all of this. That seems fair. Now, Holly's lawyer argued that it was possible that the human remains found in the coal cellar had been there since before the Crippens moved in in 1905. And they just happened to be buried with a scrap of cloth that resembled his pajamas <laughs> pants, right? Sure. Another guy lived at 39 Hilldrop Crescent, had the same had the same pajama. Pants. Yeah, some reasonable doubt they're trying to yeah, exactly. insert in here, yeah. And Holly couldn't recall if the last time he purchased the pajamas was in 1908 or 1909. And so they produce a receipt for the last purchase, and they find that his pair of pajamas was purchased on January 5th, 1909. So now we know exactly when he probably obtained these. And he actually went, like, every year or, like, twice annually to the same shop, and he would, like... You know, he he would had, like, one pair of pajamas, and so he'd go get another pair. So he had, like, a worn-out pair and then a pair that he was going to wear when this one mm-hmm. wore out. But so they were like, okay, we've nailed down this timeline, and this is all super mundane. It was super mundane to read through. And, he, like, <laughs> I think both, both Holly and his lawyer were like, where are you going with this? I admitted that I 
those are my pajamas. my pajamas. Yeah. Like, where are you going with this? And so they bring in the manufacturer. They bring in the buyer for the store who can verify what the stock for the store is like. And everybody is informed at the same time, jury and everybody else, that the manufacturer who made these pajamas had only existed since 1906, which pretty much eliminated the possibility that anyone except the Crippens could have put that scrap of cloth in mm -hmm. with the body because right. who's just breaking into somebody else's house and burying a body in their coal cellar? Right. And so now the shadow of a doubt that has been cast, mm -hmm. that's gone now. This right. has to have been Holly. And the defense is just falling apart at this point. They're like, no, I don't I don't know how the body got there. I No, this, it doesn't mean it was him. And they still tried to argue that Ethel knew nothing about Cora's disappearance and Holly had to only told her what he told everybody else, which was that Cora had left, gone to America, and then died there. And so if that's the case, if she truly didn't think that Cora was dead, then he would have had to dispose of an entire body in this very surgically precise way, not get blood anywhere, and then bury it in the coal cellar, all within, like, a 24-hour period, 24 to 48 hours, before Ethel stays the night on February 2nd. Right. And not get blood anywhere. And they're like, how do you explain that? Even if we can't explain the pajamas, how do you explain that? There was no blood anywhere. So, there was only four days of testimony. And then on the fourth day, after everybody gave their closing statements, the jury took 27 minutes to reach a verdict. And wow. on October... Yeah, yeah, they were. <laughs> they knew exactly what they wanted to do with this guy. On October 21st, 1910, they pronounced Holly Harvin Crippen guilty of murdering his wife, Cora Crippen. His sentence was death by hanging. Holly maintained his composure after the trial and appeared unshaken. He protested his innocence in letters he wrote to Ethel, who later that month was found innocent for her okay. part in the murder in her own separate trial. And he said he was glad for this and. They both attempted to appeal his conviction within the court system, and then outside of that, a petition was drawn up to gather signatures protesting the execution on the basis that the remains couldn't be positively identified as Cora's, which several thousand people signed. There were several thousand people who were like, I don't believe the stuff about the scar, or I just don't think Holly would do it, or you couldn't even say, like, what the sex of the body was, like, this right. is all very circumstantial. And then Crippen's father was continually interviewed by the newspapers, and he mostly, he had a little bit of doubt, but he was mostly like, I think my son's innocent. I can't see him doing this. He's a good guy. He did concede that he didn't know for sure, but then he would, and this is, we'll get into it later, but his name was just disgraced. He was completely disgraced. He's in LA. He's with his grandson, and they're just totally disgraced. The Crippen name is ruined. And he actually told the newspaper that he just wanted to disappear and die. Mm. And then, unfortunately, he did on November 18th, the same day that the New York Times announced the petition um. was being circulated. Wow. His grandson, Otto, whom he had raised for the last 19 years, was at his bedside when he passed. Mm. Crippen's appeal was rejected, even with Ethel's help. And... <laughs> Along with everybody else being completely unbiased and weighing in on this, Winston Churchill said that there was no question <laughs> to Crippen's guilt based on the evidence. Mm. So all of London is like, yeah, yeah, fuck this guy. Except for the couple thousand people who signed the petition right. and were like, I don't know about this. Right. 
Four weeks later, he was hanged on November 23rd. Oh, wow. They got to it quick. It was less than four months between his arrest and his execution. They were very quick with all of this. He was then buried in an unmarked mass grave on the grounds of Pentonville Prison, where he had been executed. And he was buried with all the other people who were executed at Pentonville Prison. At some point shortly after the execution, a rose bush was planted over the grave, and it became known as Crippen's Corner. First unofficially, and then somewhat officially. But it was the opinion of the prison that identifying the undesirables, the air quotes there, buried on their grounds in any capacity was unnecessary and an affront to the survivors of their crimes. The rose bush has since been removed and the grave paved over with cement to support the expansion of more buildings on the Pentonville campus. But that is not the end of the story of Holly Crippen and the possible murder of Cora Crippen. Like asp. <laughs> Do tell. So... In 1999, forensic toxicologist John Trestrail decided to re-examine the Crippen case. In a 2008 episode for PBS's Secrets of the Dead, he explained his concerns with the original findings. He said, quote, I kept coming back saying, something's not right. Something's not right here. Something's wrong here we're not understanding. I have murdered and dismembered my wife, disposed of 99% of the body. Why do I leave 1% of it under the coal cellar? The most important question in this case was, was this really Cora Crippen or not? Miraculously, Treschale finds a genealogist to work with him, and then he gets Dr. David Fran and his group at the Forensic Science Program at Michigan State University to track down Cora Crippen's great-grandniece. And they oh, actually, wow. Uh, this was an insane investigation. Yeah, this is wild. They got her to voluntarily give some of her DNA and I think maybe like her her daughters or some other people related to her as well so it wasn't just the grandniece but like some mm-hmm. other people in her family that had that same sort of DNA that could be linked to Cora they got their DNA and then they were also able to get those slides right mm, the sides it, of the scar or yes. questionable not scar the yeah. scar or fold of skin yeah so they were able to get they were able to get all of this stuff because the London hospital that maintained Spillsbury's specimens, like, held on to them for, like, 100 nice. years, which is, like... Yeah, which is wild. It's unheard of. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, like, they probably did it because, like, you know, historical purposes and, like, the impact sure. of the case. But it's just, like, oh, I can't believe that you, like, all of this stuff... Actually held on to the sediments. Yeah. Yeah. So they were able to do a DNA test, and what they found was that the mitochondrial DNA from the remains and that of Cora's distant relatives who were confirmed via genealogy, they didn't match. It was not Cora. It was, was not Cora. Camera. Yes. Wow. I know. I know. I know. So this news breaks out. There's this great paper that is in the references. Uh, you can find that on Spotify or anywhere that you're listening to this right now, and you can go Read that paper if you're interested. It's great. And it reignited interest in this case. It was like 100 years old at this point. Well, yeah, because who the fuck died in this coal cellar? <laughs> like, who the fuck was buried in the coal cellar? Yeah. I, I know. And, of course, Crippen's relatives were still pretty invested in this case because, as I said, their name kind of fell into disgrace. Like, 100 sure. years later, not everybody's Maybe a not doctor. as much. Right. But, like, it was still fucked up. It's a, it's a black mark on their family tree. Yeah. And so they actually asked for the British government to posthumously pardon 
Holly Crippen in 2008, and they also asked him to exhume his bones from their officially, unofficially, unmarked grave beneath the structures at Pentonville Prison so that he could be brought to the United States and have a proper burial. And to emphasize just how maligned the Crippen name was, Madame Tussauds, the wax place in mm-hmm. London, they actually added Crippen his likeness to their gallery on November 8th, 1910, which was before his appeal was even made. Wow. He was already in there as like, ooh, look at this scary guy. He's a murderer, yeah. And he's still in the gallery. So if you oh, wow. go, like, their their name is still attached to that. Right. And now you have this proof that Cora that wasn't he didn't in the do coal it. cellar. Yeah. yeah. So... The reason that the jury was so convinced that it truly had been Cora's remains that were recovered was because of that scar that we talked about and all mm-hmm. the, the slides of that scar. And the, the jury obviously believed that it was a scar. Dr. Spilsbury, Dr. Pepper, and Dr. Marshall all claimed to have come to the conclusion on their own that it was a scar, which I don't know about how independent this was because they all like had heard about her surgery beforehand and they like mm-hmm. all worked together and weren't necessarily, like, not talking about It was a little muddled. It was a little muddled. It was a lot of muddled. (laughs) (laughs) But another question still remains. If it wasn't Cora, who was buried in the coal cellar? Yeah, we... Who? Right? And why were there pajama pants there? Uh, Right? (laughs) So, it is theorized that when homeopathy fell out of vogue and Crippen was hard up for mummy... He may have been conducting certain illicit procedures on the side. It was public mm. knowledge that he could do dentistry, right? He was an eye and ear guy. He could also do dentistry. But the kind of procedure that would have called for scopolamine would have still been obstetri- obstetric. Like, there was no real dental use for it at the time. So, they hypothesized that the scrap of cloth from his pajamas got in the coal cellar because somebody else died and he was trying to cover it up and didn't want to admit to a botched abortion, right? Mm. Maybe he took a scrap of his own pajamas and wrapped it up and that's how it got under there. Further tests were conducted to determine the sex of whomever this cadaver was because this was something else that the case hinged on was, do we know if this is a male or female body? And what they found in 2010 was that the remains were somebody who was male. Okay. It wasn't so, even a woman no, who was buried in the coal cellar. Oh, my God. <laughs> so it wasn't from a botched abortion. It Mm-mm. wasn't Cora Crippen. No. And honestly, like, the whole botched abortion thing, like, sure, fine, you can try to explain why it was in the coal cellar and why there was, like, a match mm-hmm. to his pajama pants. But, like... Dr. Crippen testified that he'd only ever taken a theoretical course on surgery. He'd never performed surgery. So he didn't have the medical prowess that they claimed he had to be able to, to do this kind of stuff. a body. Like, right, 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 right. He couldn't do that, right? So that's, that doesn't surprise me at all. But who the fuck is in the coal cellar? <laughs> who is in the coal cellar? What John Trustrell thinks, and I, I agree actually, is that Crippen was framed. So, Mm. in his investigation into the remaining court documents, he found some suppressed documents that weren't present and given to the jury. One of the more interesting pieces is a letter to Holly from Cora, which states that she's living in America now, 
knows about the trial and has no intention of saving him what? from the gallows. I know! <laughs> so, in 1910, the prosecution received this letter. Holly never saw this letter. The prosecution received it, like, after he'd fled and, like, they were in control mm-hmm. of everything. And they thought it was a hoax. They never showed it to him or his lawyers. Wow. They were like, this isn't a real letter. So, it is entirely possible that in the decades following the infamous Jack the Ripper murders, the police were tampering with evidence in order to get a conviction and prove they were still capable of catching brutal murderers. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I agree that that's probably it because Holly fled on July 9th. So Dew visited on the 8th. Holly fled the morning of the 9th. Dew comes back on the 9th and Holly's gone with Ethel, right? Mm-hmm. He investigates on the 9th, the 12th, and the 13th. And it's not until the 13th that he that finds find the body. The cellar. True. So True. he had time to get body parts and whatever else he needed. And maybe that could have also had to do with something with the carelessness of how they treated the crime scene and the remains. Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. So mm. I think that Holly was probably framed. Wow. Yeah, it's fucked up. Wow. Now, as far as the scopolamine, we've discussed the misunderstanding of tomains and alkaloids and the contamination, like you just said, of the remains with disinfectants. So it's possible that hyacinth was never present and that the chemist for the crown had been instructed to search for hyacinth or something else that was in Holly's office and used homeopathically because the Mm. police had access to everything in his office and everything in his house when he had fled the country. So it could be that they were like, hey, we think it's this, this or this. And then the chemist was like, oh, I found this. And then the the defense's chemist was like, I couldn't find that. I tried as hard as I could and I couldn't find right, it. Right, right. Yeah. So. Hmm. But what's really interesting and kind of sad, mostly sad, <laughs> is that just before his execution, Holly was, you know, he was condemned to death for a murder of a woman who was still alive. And he knew she was still alive, or at least believed that she was. And he wrote an article that was going to be published posthumously in a periodical entitled Lloyd's Weekly, in which he asserted, after publication, it was from beyond the grave, that, quote, face to face with God, I believe the facts will be forthcoming to prove my innocence. It's just that it took 100 years for those facts to come forward. Oh, my gosh. I know. Wisdom from before and beyond the grave. I know. Oh. It's sad. It's really sad. That's really sad. Yeah. And so that's also why I'm not calling this episode scopolamine. I'm just calling it Holly Crippen because he didn't kill anyone with scopolamine. No, he didn't. So has there been any investigation into what actually happened to Miss Cora Crippen? Yes. Yeah. A little bit. So, I mean... While the trial was going on and everybody was looking for Holly and Ethel, they were looking for Cora. They were looking for Belle Elmore. And, you know, he'd already testified that she'd run off to America with a lover. And, like, Mm -hmm. he didn't know that Bruce was living with somebody else in Chicago. But, like, he'd testified that she'd run off to America. So, really, maybe she had been like, I'm going to America. Fuck you. And there were dozens of sightings everywhere of her or, you know, people that... They thought looked like her, and then it turned out to not be her, or people just wanted to be in the newspaper, so they were like, I saw Cora Crippen, and then it wasn't her. You could basically disappear back then, like, you know, Anastasia, Michael Malloy, we talked about, how Mm -hmm. you could just become a different person if you had an ID that you made up. It was a weird time to be alive. And so, like, 
there were supposed sightings of her in Alberta, Chicago, and San Francisco. None of them turned out to actually be Cora. But Trust Trail and his team think they maybe know what happened to her because they discovered that in 1920, a singer with the name similar to Belle Elmore, and I'm not sure what it was, but similar to Belle Elmore, was on the New York census living with Cora's sister. I know. And when they traced the use of this name back to the 1910 census, they found documents which indicated that this woman entered the U.S. at Ellis Island from Bermuda in 1910 after Cora Crippen had disappeared. So so she really may have just run off after all. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And just lived out what, her life. What a wild ride that one was. I know. I know. It's so crazy. Man. Well, rip Holly Crippen. I Rest know. He's my dude. That let's sucks. Let's get his body exhumed and buried, and let's get his likeness out of Madame Tussauds, because that's fucked up. Yeah, that's, yeah. Wow. That's, that was an interesting one. <laughs> that was an interesting one. Thank you for bringing this one yeah. in, because I had never heard, I have never heard of anything about this case, so that was, that was a wild ride. Yeah. Yeah, and I hope you all enjoyed the talk about scopolamine, but also animal alkaloids and plant alkaloids and all that bullshit my brain grow bigger by the moment (laughs) and like i said if you guys want to know more about scopolamine and talk have you know listen to us actually talk about scopolamine used criminally it's still maybe not as much used criminally but we'll talk about it in our microdose so keep an eye out for that and while we're talking about it we have some loyal patrons that have been following us and will definitely be able to get that episode as soon as it's released Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so let's do a quick shout out beginning of season five to our patrons Catherine, emma misty bryce josh crumbs and bass michelle jenny lula izzy key and patrick thank you all so much for supporting us thank you thank you thank you we appreciate you can't say how much it means that you support us and if you don't support us on patreon and you just support us by listening hey that's thank you too thank you tell a friend about the podcast write a review yeah we we appreciate it and everything helps and we want to keep this this thing going so yeah yeah And we have left the sinking ship, that is Twitter, but you can still find us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. And we'll also be on Tumblr now, checking it out over there, seeing how that works out. (laughs) Hell yeah. All right. So welcome to season five, everyone. We're happy to be here. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us everywhere you get your podcasts. For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Tumblr, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fogweaver. More of their music can be found on Bandcamp.com. Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Dina Stainetko. Stay safe, and remember, the dose makes the poison.